Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and this is an episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. And today I'm very happy to say that we have Lucas Basir on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Running Out in Search of Water on the High Plains. I should add for listeners that I really enjoyed this book, partially because it's about Western Kansas, and I spent a lot of time in Western Kansas. And as you will hear, so did Lucas. So let me say to Lucas, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marshall, so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to talk with you about this. The pleasure is all mine, my friend. So could you begin by telling our audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Oklahoma. And um, you grew up in Kansas, is that right? That's right. I'm originally from Southwest Kansas, um, but I left in my 20s. Um, I got, you know, sucked into anthropology, uh, and that took me to New York and South America. And then I spent a long time in the Gran Chaco region of Bolivia and Paraguay, where I was trying to understand how environmental destruction altered the lives of a recently contacted native group. And I ended up writing uh, my first book project on that. But then I returned home Mm -hmm. back to Southwest Kansas, uh, and I discovered that something that seemed similar was unfolding on the plains where I grew up, Uh, and that was through the extreme depletion of the Oglala Aquifer in that area. So I didn't really know what I would do with that. Yeah, I was going to ask, so uh, why did you uh, decide that your next project was going to be in your own ancestral homeland. It must have been interesting to go back to where you grew up. Yeah, I mean, I was just originally struck by these kind of um, uncanny resemblances between uh, the Gran Chaco and the High Plains. And I didn't know, when I started the project, I didn't know what I would do with that. Uh, I just knew that I wanted to learn a little bit more. And the reason I kind of wanted to learn more is because at the time, in 2016, um, aquifer depletion really seemed like a drama that was condensing much bigger tensions and problems in America that at that time were becoming increasingly hard to ignore. And, you know, I had a vague sense at the beginning that somehow these tensions might be tied to personal emotional connections between families and between families and the land. So... I thought at the beginning that I was also finally ready to try to confront some of those personal um, dilemmas and reconnect with my own father. The strange thing is that about halfway through my return to the Plains, I began to see that these sort of fault lines of my own feelings, my own memories, my own relationship to family, seemed to be the very same ones that were driving this extreme aquifer loss more generally. Uh, And that resonance really started to open things up for me. Uh, And it made me start to think harder about the situation um, and really made me try to dig into how I could write about it. Mm -hmm. It it must have been absolutely fascinating to go back and talk to your relatives about these things. I have a similar sort of story. As I told you in the pre-interview, my people are from the Flint Hills, which is in central Kansas, and they were wheat farmers and cattle ranchers. Mm. And I also have relatives who lived in Dodge City, 
<laughs> and they were heavily involved in cattle pens, the original cattle pens, you know, where they feed barbiturates yeah. to large animals. <laughs> so they'll stand around and eat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think many people know this about cattle pens, but they are very redolent. You can smell them uh, miles and miles away. And God knows what kind of environmental degradation they do. I, I, I certainly don't. So mm -hmm. can you begin by telling us what an aquifer is? <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question, Marshall, and it's actually um, a more complicated answer than many people think. Uh, so, you know, I don't know how familiar the listeners are with hydrogeology, but when I was growing up, I kind of got the vague sense from people that an aquifer was like an underground lake, uh, and it was united as a body of water that was buried. Well, it turns out that on the High Plains, the Oglala Aquifer Formation, which is uh, the one that I'm um, intimately familiar with, uh, isn't that at all. Um, it's more like uh, a kind of palimpsest of different layers of sediments that are um, containing water uh, that only appears when you pump a hole, you poke a hole into the sedimented layers and pump the water out. Uh, so. It's not a single thing in Southwest Kansas. Uh, it's a set of relationships between a lot of different um, layers, some of which are interconnected uh, and homogenous, and some of which aren't at all. Uh, they're broken apart. So there's a kind of underground complexity there uh, that is part of the, the mystery of depletion. Uh, and it's part of what makes aquifers and, and irrigation such a complicated, uh, twisty thing to write about, to think about, and to try to regulate or govern. So would it be fair to say that the Aglala is kind of a term of art for something much more complex? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a term of art. Uh, and it's a term of, um, you know, colonial expansion and colonial imaginaries. I mean, it's no coincidence that uh, the early... Um, uh, kind of hydrogeologists that were talking about groundwater formations in the High Plains uh, were naming them after uh, the area's uh, native peoples who were dispossessed. Uh, so the idea that there is a single Oglala formation um, is a misleading imaginary. Yeah, that's the impression I got from your book. And it, But it, it, whatever it is, is enormous. It covers uh, several states. Yeah, it covers parts of six different states. It stretches all the way from southern South Dakota uh, into eastern New Mexico and, and far down into Texas. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, I was going to say, let's talk a little bit about the people who were there before the European settlers came. You talk a little bit about that. Who were they? Well, you know, um, I'm no expert on the deep Paleo-Indian uh, history and the archaeology of the area, um, but what we do know and what I can speak about are the native groups that were historically documented in the area um, prior to the kind of um, boom of settler colonization in western Kansas. Uh, and you're talking about uh, different groups of Kiowa, different groups of Comanche, different bands of Cheyenne, uh, different groups of Plains Apache. Uh, and different groups um, moved to the area, often around water sources, uh, and used it at different times of the year. 
uh, for different activities and ceremonial purposes. Mm-hmm. And that, now we can come to your family history. Uh, when did the European settlers first show up? Well, you know, there's a long history of um, trading and migration and movement through the area, uh, which predated the kind of settler colonial um, uh, patterns. But the settlers really arrived after um, the 1870s, the early 1870s is when uh, there was a kind of um, boom of settler colonization associated with the railroads, associated with the um, massive extinction of local wildlife uh, and the bison herds uh, and various um, kinds of nefarious dealings between the United States government uh, and native groups in the area, which eventually um, pushed them south of the Arkansas uh, in the, Med- the famous Medicine Lodge Treaty. Um, so you had a kind of um, layered process of colonial dispossession and dislocation. Uh, and then settlers came very soon after that. Uh, so you had people settling around water sources uh, and claiming them for their exclusive property uh, beginning in the late 1870s but really consolidating through the 1880s and 1890s. Yeah, one of the things I found fascinating about your book, and this relates to my personal experience too, I remember my grandfather talking about Western Kansas as if there was no water there at all. Because Mm -hmm. Eastern Kansas is very different than Western Kansas. We don't have to do any irrigation in Eastern Kansas because, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll get 30 inches of rain commonly. Um, Mm -hmm. But can you talk a little bit about the ecology of Western Kansas? I mean, I'm really, this is kind of a leading question. It's not as if you can, as you can in uh, Eastern Kansas, just just plow the land and things will grow. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah, rainfall amounts in Western Kansas range from, you know, um, they they vary wildly. Uh, It's a semi-arid Great Plains ecology, uh, and there's not a lot of surface water, uh, especially now there's, there's, very little surface water. Historically, there was much more, but um, it was often temporary or seasonal where you had a, a large number of playa lakes uh, and buffalo wallows that would fill in with um, temporary you know, uh, amounts of water. Um, but the permanent water sources were extremely rare and um, very celebrated. Uh, there was a rich lore around the permanent water sources um, and the place that I'm speaking about in Southwest Kansas, um, Wagon Bed Springs, was one of the only permanent water sources in about a 50-mile radius. Uh, so everybody knew about it, and everybody mapped those early waters uh, like they were islands in the ocean. And, and now we can kind of get into your family history, as I said, and, and you mentioned your great-grandfather. Uh, I believe you used the initials RW for him, is that right? <laughs> That's right. Correctly? That's correct. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about R.W.? Well, yeah. Um, he's an interesting character. And um, his grandfather was had uh, settled in central Kansas uh, in the 1860s and then moved to um, so-called Indian Territory at the time uh, and then back to central Kansas. Uh, and R.W. Um, was, you know one of this second wave of real agro-industrial settlers that came to Southwest Kansas. Uh, And they started um, uh, transforming 
the short grass prairies into a kind of industrial uh, sphere. Uh, and that was, of course, associated with the Dust Bowl and, and all of the horrendous ecological disasters of the Dust Bowl that we're all very familiar with have become, become kind of iconic uh, in our national um, history. But R.W., um, I never knew him. Uh, I believe that, you know, he held me when I was a small child. I have some vague recollection of, you know, some holiday at his house. Um, so everything I know about him is kind of reconstructed from family archives and stories other people have told me about him. But those stories were really striking to me in their um, consistency about his nature, about his goals, uh, and about his single-minded focus on uh, agribusiness and, and agro-capitalism. So he was a big landowner in the area. Uh, he was associated with some of the first feed pens in that area, um, which connects with your own family history. Mm -hmm. um, and he was associated with, um, you know, being among the first group of people in that area that started deep well irrigation in the late 1940s. So um, he gives me a kind of narrative about um, you know, agribusiness that's deeply tied uh, to my own existence and my own family out there. Yeah, my my impression of him is he's a little bit like I don't know. I'm I'm reminded of Israeli settlers <laughs> who wanted to make the desert bloom. He he strikes me as that kind of person that he saw an arid place with nothing on it, and he was going to make it bloom. Yeah, is that a fair characterization? I think that's a fair Without characterization. A more or less anything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I think that is fair, but I think it's also uh, generous. You know, I think that um, there were a lot of contradictions in um, um, R.W. and in his peers in that time where there was a kind of narrative or a sense about divine um, right and domination over nature. Uh, that guided him and made him feel justified in both, um, you know, going to a Christian church and also being single-handedly responsible for plowing up huge amounts of, um, you know, uh, short grass prairie. And so I think that from what I know, everyone told me that RW's primary drive wasn't a kind of... Um, uh, mutual obligation to the future, but really uh, about profit uh, and about um, taking advantage of a set of conditions to make money for himself. Yeah, there's one place in the book where you take on the notion of um, husbandry or shepherds of the land. And I got to tell you, my grandfather, who sounds a lot like your great-grandfather, did not think of himself that way. <laughs> not <laughs> <Yeah>. at all. <laughs> uh -huh. That's right. They really thought of themselves as businessmen. Uh, and this was an opportunity yeah. and you were smart and you worked hard and um, you made the right decisions. And if you were smart enough and ruthless enough, you made a fortune and that was what it was about. Yeah, it, it does remind me of my, my, my grandfather and he was involved in wheat farming and cattle ranching and he owned shares in grain elevators. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what, that's what I remember about him and going out and riding the combines when he would harvest wheat and we'd put it in the grain elevator and 
but it did you did get the sense even when i was young that it was it was industrial everything mm-hmm. was done by machines mm-hmm. and, and it was done without any thought of essentially anything else but i, I don't want to say maximizing profits obviously they wanted to take care of their families that, that was i guess a primary part of it but that there wasn't a sense that <clears throat> they were farmers that they were business people that's exactly right that's exactly right um and i think it's a key distinction you know i think that um it's something about western kansas that is really unique um it's something that's important uh and it's something that's um again kind of in tension with um these other community values that are also really prevalent there and a sense of neighborliness and and watching out for other people and um you know th- there's a contradictory impulses that are happening all the time. So can we talk a little bit about pumping water out of the ground? Uh, when <laughs> did uh, the first European settlers get the idea to do that? Because as I say, from my grandfather's perspective, you couldn't grow anything in Western Kansas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the truth is that he was, you know, your grandpa was probably right about that. You know, um, before there was deep water or deep well irrigation, um, uh, Agriculture in Western Kansas was really precarious, uh, and there was a lot of people who um, gambled and and lost on agriculture. So you had uh, a kind of rush around um, high wheat prices in the 1920s, and a couple of wet years, and a lot of investment um, that led to the Dust Bowl and a drought, um, and everything sort of collapsed. I mean, it's hard to overstate the kind of degree of systemic collapse that people, many people besides me, of course, have noted uh, that occurred out there in the 1930s. But what is unique or striking to me is the way in which groundwater um, came around or came to figure in people's imaginary as underground rain or uh, a sort of stabilizer that let people continue with that kind of gambling attitude um, and and remain uh, doing the same sort of practices that got them into trouble in the 20s. Um, so that's what happened in the 1940s, the late 1940s. Um, it corresponded with the, the discovery of a giant natural gas field out there, the Huguenin field. Um, and with yeah. the combination of the natural gas prices, high wheat prices, um, people really started pumping groundwater. Uh, massive amounts of groundwater were extracted uh, and people started using it to grow crops that are not actually suited uh, for the natural rainfall uh, of that area, like corn and alfalfa and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about those crops in a second, but I, I'd like that you mentioned gas and oil because I also remember from my grandfather's experience, there was, my father told me about this. I didn't know about it. But there was a point in central Kansas when every farmer wanted to drill an oil well on his land. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and he, in fact, had one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it didn't yield very much, but it was a stable source of income. And so he was very glad about that. And then oil prospecting became a huge business in central Kansas, at least. Yeah, absolutely. But again, I mean, it goes back to your point about these people being businessmen and, and their businesses exploiting the land and whatever's under it. Yeah, that's right. And so can you talk a little bit about how government policy helped these agro-businessmen, we call them farmers, I suppose, um, 
exploit the aquifer? Well, it's interesting. I mean, that's another complicated um, set of questions. And I think that one of the things I discovered in the course of, uh, you know, traveling uh, around Southwest Kansas looking for aquifer um, uh, imaginaries or information or stories was that every single component that has to do with depletion is much more than it seems. And it's more like every particular part has its own tensions and fault lines and contradictions that prevent any single explanation from being restricted to that domain. Um, so with the, you know, the question around governance or politics or state policy, um, you had uh, people who were who've long been concerned about dwindling groundwater in Southwest Kansas. Uh, you have a lot of people who've long been trying to do something to prevent it. Um, so it's not just that everybody out there was misguided from the very beginning. It's more like there were a set of conversations that were happening that could have gone a lot of different ways uh, early on. And one of those conversations was around um, the, the question about state authority over groundwater. Uh, so partly because local groups were concerned about the dwindling uh, water table, the state um, agreed to cede much but not all of aquifer governance to um, what they call groundwater management districts uh, in the 1970s. And these were set up, there were five of them set up in areas of Kansas with particular pressures on groundwater supplies and resources. Uh, and they meant to give local people the right to control their own destiny. Uh, so you had a kind of intermediary management uh, structure between state politics and local politics. Uh, and what happened is that some of those um, regional groups or management districts uh, took a pro-conservation stance and some of them took um, a pro-use uh, stance. Um, and often you know, those management districts and their particular stances were, were to some degree at odds with certain parts of the people living in the area. Uh, and it's a really interesting um, and complicated set of uh, debates and processes and laws. But the end result in Southwest Kansas is that you have a set of policies that until very recently um, not only permitted uh, but encouraged a kind of unsustainable level of pumping out of the aquifer. And the end result we're seeing now, uh, where you have a lot of farms and a lot of people who are running out of water, um, some towns are running out of water, uh, and you're, you're getting down um, into a new kind of topography of groundwater that, that's setting up a lot of conflicts uh, and making it impossible to ignore. Yeah, part of the reason I ask about government policy is back to my grandfather, who seems to be a major character in this interview. Uh, he, uh, he, he was very excited about offset programs and set-aside programs where the government would pay him not to grow wheat. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess the question I had is, is there a similar sort of program that the government has for farmers in Western Kansas not to grow and that is save water? Yeah, there's a lot of contradictory um, mechanisms uh, that are in place at the federal level and at the state level, some of which um, are designed to give farmers the option 
to take land out of production, which means usually out of irrigated production, uh, in response or in return for some kind of um, support. Uh, and many of those were developed, you know, in the aftermath of the Dust Bowl uh, and were designed to, you know, um, get people to take cropland that was not being productive out of production, replant it to um, certain kinds of grasses or legumes that would recharge the soil and rebuild nitrogen. Um, and then there are some in the most severely impacted areas um, of irrigation where it's just clearly not sustainable and never has been, like the sand hills along the south of the Arkansas, where the state has mm-hmm. put into programs to encourage people to transition out of irrigated uh, crops and back into a kind of um, more sustainable cover crop. Um, but once again, the key thing is that those are just one piece of the puzzle uh, where you have other formations, uh, including crop insurance programs um, that are covering in, they, they fill in the gaps uh, and they, they allow depletion to move in a particular kind of a way that doesn't correspond to any singular programmatic aim. So a farmer can participate in a lot of different programs uh, and and make his bottom line uh, through those different programs. And it's a really um, interesting um, set of contradictory impulses or uh, imperatives that are in place. But I, I didn't know any of that. You know, I come from a family uh, that's been involved in this kind of stuff for a long time. And a lot of that was mysterious to me when I started this. I kind of learned... Um, by talking to different people, what they were thinking about, what particular programs they were in, uh, and no single farmer is participating in the same programs. Um, It's all kind of uh, unique and idiosyncratic. So just to dwell a little bit on these uh, groundwater management boards, how does one get on them and and who is in charge of them? Well, you know, I thought that these were um, open kinds of elected positions Uh, And you have um, the way they're set up in Kansas, at least, is there's different county representatives and there's different industrial representatives. And then there's kind of a directorate or a leadership group. Uh, And they have the ability to permit new wells. They have the ability to not permit new wells. They have the ability to sanction um, uh, people who uh, abuse groundwater or overpump. Uh, They have the ability to kind of regulate where people put wells and try to prevent uh, what they call water chasers or people who are following the last pockets of groundwater in a particular area. So whoever is on that board has a huge responsibility um, for depletion and for um, preventing depletion. Now, what is striking is that um, in Kansas, the way the groundwater management districts were set up, is that only people who have, who either own 40 acres of land or control water rights to one acre foot per year are eligible to vote in the elections that appoint the people hmm. to those boards. Which means that the vast majority of people in the area don't have a say in the electoral or democratic process by which those boards are constituted. At the same time, the vast majority of people in the area are dependent on groundwater uh, for continued jobs, for you know the viability of certain communities, uh, for schools, for property taxes, for all of these different things. Uh, and so I was surprised to notice um, that there's a kind of um, disconnect 
between, you know, the majority of people in the area uh, and the people that can vote on water governance and water policy. Mm -hmm. I should pause to say that I bet that many of the listeners to this podcast, though they've never been to Western Kansas, have seen exactly what we're talking about. Because if you've flown into, for example, Denver Airport, you go (laughs) over Western Kansas and you see the crop circles because they are everywhere. Yeah, that's right. And Um, it's stunning. You know, like when you see it from an aerial perspective, uh, it's like a painting. Uh, You can see that almost every acre uh, is somehow covered in either a pivot irrigation circle uh, or a flood irrigation uh, square. uh, And and you realize the extent of what's happening. And, you know, on one hand, proponents of irrigation say, well, look, uh, that's great. We produce uh, more grain. We feed the world, you know. Uh, we produce grain for uh, way out of proportion to uh, the amount of people that are here, and we're doing a public good uh, for the world. Uh, and if you're anti-depletion, you fly over it and you see a kind of um, stunning uh, industrial scale of unsustainable consumption uh, and productivity that um, is, is artificially sustained. Uh, by groundwater. Uh, And eventually that's going to run out. I know that in central Kansas, there's been some consolidation of farms. And actually, I learned the other day that Bill Gates is the largest owner of agricultural land in the United States. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. I don't know if it's true. I just read it. Um, (laughs) Has there been that kind of consolidation in western Kansas? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, the, the interesting thing about groundwater use in Western Kansas is that it follows some of these well-known and well-documented national trends, but it takes them in its own way, or there's a particular uh, twist that's given. Uh, so in Western Kansas, um, I presumed and had always heard uh, that you know the kind of groups of people that were driving this were local farmers like my great grandfather, who may or you know were more or less successful agrobusinessmen, um, and the successful ones had more land, and the less successful ones had less land, uh, and it worked like that. But I discovered, um, to my surprise, that in fact a huge amount of the farmland uh, that's irrigated in western Kansas is owned by people who don't live there, who live somewhere else, uh, yeah. or by corporations uh, and. Um, you know, those include the cattle feeder corporations, but they also include mega dairies, which are expanding in Southwest Kansas and throughout um, Kansas. Uh, and those big multinational, multi-state corporations um, have all kinds of land holdings um, that are often hidden from public view because, you know, you have uh, tenants or shareholder farmers who farm at the behest of the corporation uh, and you have a lot of movement of um, crops and commodities that extend far beyond uh, the reach of any particular local farmer or um, regional group of farmers. Uh, so I think that you know you have a consolidation and you have an industrial form that's bent on extracting uh, groundwater resources while they're available for a you know a relatively uh, undervalued cost. Uh, And then blaming any critiques of that unsustainable pattern um, as someone who's opposed to local community values or, you know, upstanding local citizens. And that's just simply not true. Yeah. Yeah. I 
I'm I'm thinking of Bill Gates as a steward of the land. Um, <laughs> but I think that actually many of the listeners will recognize this. If you look in your 401k or whatever sort of retirement instrument you have, and if you look deep into it, you'll find alternative investments. They're not, I noticed this in, in, in my own retirement account, they're not equities and they're not money like bonds. It's land and often it's agricultural land. So I, I think that I probably own some of it. <laughs> and and, and I am no steward of the land. <laughs> it's time to disinvest, divest. Yeah. Marshall. Well, you know, I mean, it does. Well, it does get to the point, and that is that these this land is a kind of you know it's an investment instrument, and you know it's it's done to kind of uh, add weight and stability to you know people's stock portfolios. But those people like me are so far from it, and all I'm interested in my stock portfolio is what the yield is. I, I, I mean, I'm just confessing this. I don't look carefully at it. And so when I see that, you know, in, in my, uh, you know, suite of investments that there is agricultural land, I, I don't think a thing about it. Um, but it goes to your point that there are forces far beyond Western Kansas that are in control of these things. Absolutely. And I think that's a really important point because um, there's, you know, all of these things are hyper politicized and it's easy um, in this kind of hyper politicized world that we occupy and inhabit at this moment to, to assign blame um, to a particular group of people uh, who we believe to be homogenous uh, and then let ourselves off the hook for our own complicity yeah. and responsibility or collusion in these kinds of planetary dilemmas. Um, and that's true in, that's true for people from outside, uh, like we're talking about where, um, you know, aquifer depletion ripples out, uh, and really casts a, a stunningly wide net. Uh, and it, it demands all of us take a hard look, uh, at our relationship to these sorts of places and practices and extractive industries and flows. Um, it also applies in Western Kansas where, um, you know, it's easy to paint any um, critical voices as somehow, you know, not understanding the situation either. So I think that, you know, one of the things that comes up in, in my book and through this process of trying to connect uh, across social divides is the fact that there's a kind of radical commonality at stake. Uh, and, um, you know, the question is how we activate that, how we, how we take responsibility for that, uh, how we really um, acknowledge what that means for our politics uh, and for real people who are, who are often struggling to get by in a situation that's not necessarily of their own making. Yeah, and one of the things you point out in the book, which I think is completely correct, and I would just add that it's completely opaque to most of the people who, for example, might own a little chunk of Western Kansas. They don't even know they own a little chunk of Western Kansas, let alone, I mean, they probably don't know what an aquifer is, nor do they care. So yeah, the, the, the number of degrees of remove that the owners of these assets are from the assets themselves sort of makes it impossible to be the shepherd of anything other than the bottom line. That's right. Uh, and it extends all the way from, you know, uh, the kind of like clear 
um, people who are benefiting, but also, you know, the people who are writing the algorithms to manage risk, uh, people who are understanding insurance policies, people who are involved in the subsidies programs. Um, there's a lot of different aspects of this uh, that um, are, they remain invisible in a way. And yeah. there's something very peculiar and insidious about the ways in which we are um, comfortable uh, letting those things remain invisible and breaking it down into a kind of binary or di you know dichotomous opposition between groups where we already think we know what they're doing and who's to blame for things. Um, and I think that you know if we're really trying to make a difference or uh, find a better way to to inhabit um, these kinds of places, uh, a way to return home, a way to reconnect with our family. Uh, it starts with with opening up those questions and and really uh, critically exploring them in all of their complexity and depth. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what the people on the ground in Western Kansas think about all of this. How how do they understand the depletion of the Aglala? Well, you know, again, I think the question is who the, who is the they, uh, and. And in my book, there's a lot of different they's, um, and many of them um, are at odds with one another. So, uh, you know, it's a common misconception that this is a really homogenous area of people, uh, and the people who live in these areas um, share the same kind of class consciousness or uh, self-interest or even, you know, ethnic, racial, um, gendered sensibilities. And it turns out that that's just not true either. Um, so you have a large number of people in these industrial centers and like Dodge City, which you you mentioned. Um, that's a very um, um, complicated ethnic uh, community, as is Garden City and Liberal, where I went to high school. Um, so you have a lot of different groups of people with different um, sensibilities around the aquifer. But that said even within irrigation farmers who are more of a homogenous group of people, uh, there's no agreement on what depletion means, on how we should address it, uh, and on what the proper responsibility is to future generations or to the land. And so one of the interesting things, um, you know, the book started, the project started with my father expressing his concern uh, and I realized that there are groups of people um, who are irrigation farmers who are just as concerned and who are actively trying to find um, better ways ahead. Then there's a big group of people who are irrigation farmers who are local. Uh, and again, this is a, a fraction of the landowners because most of the landowners are external. But out of those people, um, I would say the majority don't agree with depletion. They don't want the aquifer to run out. Uh, they would prefer to find a better way of ahead, but they feel like they have no other choice. They feel like they're trapped in these uh, systems of finance, of debt, uh, of obligation, of different programs. And uh, the only thing that they can do is to keep going because if they stopped, uh, it would mean immediate um, problems for them and their family. And then there's a small group of people, um, and I think they're a minority of people in terms of uh, local landowner irrigation farmers um, who are have kind of cynically given up uh, and are uh, you know 
actively okay with depleting what's left, getting what they can, and moving on. So those are some of the fault lines around what people in that area think. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned the diversity of this area because one of the things, I'm sure you run into this too, one of the misconceptions about Kansas and in fact all Midwestern states is that they're very homogenous. I mean, I know from my experience in Western Kansas that there are large and very old, I mean, many, many generations Hispanic groups there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, the majority of the, uh, you know, recognized population in, in many of the counties of Southwest Kansas, um, it's 50% or greater self-identified Hispanic of, of, you know, either Mexican American, uh, or Central American or more recent migrants. Um, but it's, it's not, you know, uh, a homogeneously Euro-American settler, um, population, and even amongst, you know, of course, as we all know, amongst any uh, Hispanic uh, designation, there's all kinds of diversity within that. Um, and then there's all kinds of um, other groups of people. There's a lot of resettled refugees in the area uh, who were uh, originally involved with, um, you know, industrial agribusiness. Um, and then there's a large African-American population, too, uh, in southwest Kansas that people um, often um, uh, from outside don't recognize that there's an environmental justice um, issue. There's also an environmental um, racism issue involved in aquifer depletion in Southwest Kansas. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned this because I, I'm just often astounded. I mean, you remember this book, What's the Matter with Kansas? And I looked at it and I wanted to say, <laughs> which Kansas? Because the people yeah. in Manhattan and Lawrence are not like the people in Liberal who are really not yep. like the people in Wichita. Absolutely. <laughs> and you only have to travel around Kansas a little bit to understand that there really isn't one Kansas. There are a lot of Kansases. Yep. Um, I, I, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I want to ask you, what can be done about stopping or hindering or reducing the depletion of the aquifer now? It's a good question, Marshall. And I think that, um, you know, one of the ways into this is around the existing mechanisms. So one of the, the most surprising things that I discovered in my, you know, researching and writing this book is that there are concrete mechanisms that are already in place in Kansas to um, intervene and prevent um, extreme depletion in these kinds of situations. But they have to be enacted at the state level, uh, and that involves a negotiation with the groundwater management districts. Um, so some of those mechanisms um, could be activated by groups of farmers who wanted to organize themselves. Um, and I discussed some examples where that where people have tried to do that. Some of those mechanisms can be activated um, at the state level um, by state officials. Some of those mechanisms could be activated by the groundwater management districts themselves. Um, but I think that a key thing is raising awareness amongst um, residents in the area about the way that water governance works. Uh, and if you could open up um, water management decisions to an actual democratic process, I think that the people in Southwest Kansas um, are invested in doing the right thing uh, and making tough decisions that would benefit future generations. Uh, and I know that that's the kind of value um, that I was raised in. And I know that that's the value that a lot of people out there share. 
Uh, it's just a matter of making sure that people are informed about the situation and, uh, and, and letting democracy actually work. Yeah. I, I have to think that in a, I mean, one of the basic principles of any public policy is that you can't ask people to do something they can't do and people's livelihoods, families, hundreds and hundreds of them, thousands and thousands of them depend on the system as it exists now. And you can't ask them just to stop doing what they're doing because then they wouldn't have livelihoods. And I just have to imagine that there's, you know, I'm not a huge fan of state level or federal level intervention, but it seems like this is a place where it's kind of called for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think people, you know, in general, and like you, I agree with this, um, Nobody wants uh, government or regulation for its own sake. Uh, people only want government and regulation that works and that's sensitive to their actual realities uh, and uh, you know allows people a space for dignity and self-determination. Uh, and in the case of Southwest Kansas, um, I think that that is a possibility. You know, it's a matter of having hard conversations uh, and bringing together groups of people that share certain uh, investments in the future. So uh, I think that, you know, uh, it's not just telling people to stop doing what they're doing. It's, it's giving people a way to do what they're doing and what they want to do uh, that actually gets from point A, the present, to point B, the future, uh, in, a, in, you know, uh, a sustainable and, and um, inclusive kind of a manner. Uh, and the good news is that that's possible out there. Uh, we have those options. We have those mechanisms. Uh, and I think that the people of Southwest Kansas, um, if they're given all of the correct information, uh, would make the right decisions. I think you're right. I mean, the people that I know in Kansas, and these are my people, they do want to do the right thing. And they're sensible folks. Um, and I, I hope what you said is true. Let, let me ask this. Uh, have your family members read your book? And what did they think? <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, they have. Uh, my father is the central character in the book. Uh, and one of the things about the the process is that um, writing the book and, and thinking about these issues um, really helped us rebuild a connection and um, recharge some kinds of trust uh, and commonality between us that um, was really uh, more than I could have hoped for when I began the process. Uh, and he was a partner in this from the beginning to the end. Uh, and without him, nobody would have talked to me about a lot of these things. Uh, and so I owe a great debt to him for the book. Um, and he um, he read it, and it allowed us to have conversations about things. Uh, and, you know, um, he was very supportive of it. Uh, so, you know, I hope that other people out there, some farmers have read it and, and given me feedback. Um, I hope, you know, it was extremely helpful and useful. Uh, and I hope other people read it, and um, I hope it starts a conversation. I hope it does as well. I think that that um, Princeton University Press should uh, should produce a hundred thousand copies and distribute it in <laughs> Western Kansas <laughs> just to start those conversations. <laughs> well, thank you, Marshall. I appreciate it, and I appreciate the chance to get the conversation started on your podcast. Absolutely great. Well, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Lucas Basir today about his book, 
Running Out in Search of Water on the High Plains. I highly recommend that you read this book. It's a great read. It comes from Lucas's personal experiences. And in many moments, it's it's informative and, as he says, kind of touching because he's writing about his own family members. So, Lucas, let me thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.